Welcome to Applied Geopolitics, the podcast from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at Rain. I'm your host, Roger Baker. There's been a, a rising popularity of the term geopolitics, but within that popularization, there's been a dilution of the meaning of the term and of the field. Um, over history, we know that the, the use of the word geopolitics has waxed and waned. It's gone in and out of fashion. It's been adapted and adjusted in the way in which it's been applied. In the use of geography as an independent variable, as our guest will point out, um, and in recognizing that the relative value or challenge of any geographical space can change over time due to technology, um, society, things of that sort, a geopolitical analysis provides in many ways a literal grounding uh, for understanding the development of and the relations of nations. But it also uh, at times has risked diverging into determinism. Um, and so to better understand just what we mean by geopolitics, how it's evolved over time, and how geopolitical analysis can provide valuable perspectives for shaping and assessing foreign policy, both if you're involved in foreign policy and for many of our listeners, uh, if you simply need to observe and understand how nations are going to interact to be able to adapt and move between those spaces, um, I'm really happy to be joined again here by Jehan Park. Jehan is a postdoctoral fellow and adjunct lecturer at the Edwin O. Reischauer Center for East Asian Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced and International Studies. Currently, he's completing his book manuscript, The Geographical Pivot of Grand Strategy, Rising Powers in the Far East, 1895 to 1905. And he recently uh, wrote an article, Rethinking Geopolitics, Geography as an Aid to Statecraft, that was published in the Texas National Security Review. So Jehan, it's really great to have you back. Thanks very much for having me, Roger. So why, why don't we start off, why don't you tell a little bit about sort of what was the origin of the article that you've recently written um, and give us some of the key points that you were trying to bring out in that article. Well, thanks for the question. Um, it really began, uh, began as a part of my dissertation, which now I'm now turning into a book. And the dissertation itself asked a couple of a set of questions about geopolitics. What is geopolitics? How does it work? And what value does it have? So this was really an opening chapter of this dissertation. And I thought, um, and, and as with the uh, war in Ukraine and in China's rise and now um, ongoing conflict in Israel and whatnot, uh, people started looking into geopolitics, using the term geopolitics more often. And that, that sort of prompted me to use, to separate this chapter out as a standalone article. And, and, and more importantly, what really animated me throughout the process was that international relations scholarship has been trying to re reincorporate ge geography into the research program, but it hasn't been really successful in my view uh, due to its neglect of classical geopolitics. So that's what I really try to do. Um, to go over the article really briefly, it is uh, it makes three arguments broadly. So I did conceptual, historical, and theoretical analysis of geopolitics to make three arguments. One, conceptual argument. So a lot of people use the concept geopolitics to denote either international relations writ large or great power politics in particular in popular discourses. And that is because of the fact that the states are primarily territorial entities. And scholars use geopolitics to denote everything from postmodern understanding of, of uh, 
cartographic names and place names and whatnot, all the way to historical materialism. And that comes from the overstretching of the concept of geography. A second part is uh, the historical analysis of the intellectual history of geopolitics. So I looked at the the, uh, writings of uh, classical geopoliticians in the uh, geostrategic school or Anglo-American tradition. Uh, The the key ones are Helfer, McKendall, Alfred Mahan, and Nicholas Speakman. And in their writings, most uh, theoretical and most uh, important writings, uh, they use geography as basically as an aid to statecraft. And the, the way in which they incorporated geography in explaining foreign policy and grand strategy uh, was palatable to uh, American strategic uh, thinkers as well as educators uh, in the context of World War II. So the uh, geopolitics got incorporated into U.S. strategic education. But the rise of Hans Morgenthau's ideational realism, as I call it, uh, has uh, dwarfed and eclipsed uh, classical geopolitics in the context of international relations itself. Uh, sort of uh, identity crisis. And the final point is about theoretical um, uh, content of modern international relations scholarship. So I argue that even though classical geopolitics itself has been marginalized in, marginalized in the field, uh, sort of the basic premise of geopolitics that uh, geography affects uh, statecraft still undergirds much of literature. And I looked at uh, different uh, um, lines of scholarship and I classified in, them into three uh, different subgroups, uh, those who use geography as ends to statecraft or objectives of statecraft, uh, means of statecraft, by which I mean how geography shapes uh, power projection capabilities or states uh, capabilities itself. And finally, uh, the, the ways of statecraft or strategic style or orientation. Uh, even with that, I argue that uh, some of the uh, basic characteristics of geography, especially uh, comprehensiveness, what I call comprehensiveness, relativity, and asymmetry of geography uh, have not been really well explored. So I close with uh, sort of a future research agenda, and that that's the basic. Uh, those are the basic points of the article. So what, you know, in in looking at this, you know, you've mentioned the your dissertation, and of course, as as we both noted, there's been a um, Sort of a dilution in in the in the popular usage of just what geopolitics means. It ends up having a a broad, all inclusive meaning, which means it has no meaning. Um, wh- why did you find it important to really dig down and go back and redefine geopolitics, geopolitical analysis, and in particular, why did you choose to look um, at the Anglo American school? Because of course, there's the German schools and and all sorts of other variants of geopolitics that are out there. Right. So the importance of uh, defining a concept very clearly and narrowly and concretely, for that matter, is important to build up a research program. And I, for one, is somebody who is invested and interested in resurrecting geopolitics as a legitimate sort of of mode of analysis in the uh, field of international relations scholarship. And as I've just briefly mentioned, uh, the way in which geography is incorporated in the the, uh, literature uh, they, the scholars have done, done done a good job, but I think if they have read uh, the works by Mahan, McKinder, and Speakman, they would have benefited even, even better. And I spoke with some senior political scientists, and they said they read those stuff when they were being trained in, for example, 1970s and 80s, but now we don't really read about it. So uh, I think it is really important to sort of re-engage 
how um, these thinkers thought about the role of geography, especially in the context of U.S.-China rivalry and, and, and the nature of great power competition and warfare have changed from the, the Cold War context. Uh, the, the second part, you, you asked a second question, which is why I focused on the Anglo-American tradition. So, you know, people will disagree and, 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 and specialists will, <laughs> my, myself included, a specialist will always split hairs. Uh, but there, there are good sort of scholarship and articles out there arguing that the French political geography is probably a little bit too possibilistic as opposed to German geopolitic, which has been stigmatized with this uh, somewhat unfair uh, guilt by association with the Nazis, uh, is too deterministic. So uh, the Anglo-American tradition of geopolitics acknowledges the agency of actors as well as uh, the influence of material constraints. So I think it strikes a nice balance between uh, Germanic geopolitics and French political ge geography. And also, if you look at uh, more or more of the continental tradition, which German school of geopolitics sprang from, um, it is a little bit more concerned with the, uh, the how socio-political organizations within the state are formed as opposed to foreign policy. Obviously, there are both elements in both schools of thought, but but I thought that the Anglo-American school was a little bit more useful for the uh, purpose of foreign policy. Okay, and as as you note, at the core of that Anglo-American school are um, Mahan Mackinder and uh, Spikeman. Um, often, you know, the oversimplified to oh, Mahan is the 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 seas are all are the most important. Mackinder is the land is most important, and Spikeman splits the difference. Um, you 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 know, in the in the article, you have a little bit of space to be able to talk about some of the ways in which they actually. Um, overlap and interlap and and how they sort of build upon each other. Um, how would you characterize at its core, if you were to take the three and synthesize them into sort of one space, what's the what are the key highlights of this this type of geopolitical analysis, this type of geopolitical synthesis? Right. So um Maha McKinder and Speakman, they all they were all concerned with where their nations should direct their foreign policy. So, for example, Mahan, uh, his most influential book, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, really focuses on how uh, the, con the, the, com the com command of the sea sort of affects our nation's wealth uh, by way of commerce and during the wartime, how the command of the sea and decisive naval battles have really determined the course of history. Mackinder, obviously, I'm I'm sure they were reading each other, and Mackinder, I think, cites Mahan at one point, and he he was looking at it from the British Empire's perspective and the rise of Russia in the context of the the construction of the Trans-Siberian Railway and so on and so forth, which would make potentially uh, Russia impregnable from attack from the sea, and allow it to amass. Uh, natural resources, continental resources to build a navy that is second to none. So that sort of animated Alfred McKinder's thinking. And finally, Speakman was writing mostly in the context of uh, pre-World War II. And I think his most influential book, America's Strategy and World Politics, came out in 1942. It's a very auspicious time for an author to publish a book uh, after the Pearl Harbor attack. And he was looking at it from an American perspective 
that is about to uh, face mortal enemies in the context of World War II. So, and, and he looked at both sides of the arguments and said, you know, it's not really about the heartland, but it's about the rimland where all the balance of power of the world has been determined. So that's the, that's the broader sort of like arguments. Now, um, all of them used geography uh, along with other human factors. If you go back to the six, six uh, factors, uh, six causes, as Mahan called it, of uh, sea power, he looked at geography and coastlines and whatnot, but also he looked at the government and the nature of the people, commercial attitude, and so on and so forth. McKinder, the same. He looks at the fertility of soil and, and animal power, but also he looks at socioeconomic organization and technology. Uh, finally, Speakman also looked at uh, the, the changing centers of world power and how well the state work, uh, mobilizes resources and so on and so forth. So all of them were interested in where to direct their foreign policies, but also they used geography in a dynamic fashion, incorporating human, human, uh, human factors. Right. And, and one of the things I think that comes across, particularly as you look at, um, you know, the evolution, for example, of Mackinder's Heartland thesis. Um, if you look at Mahan, you know, his, his whole point of sea power is to look at the past and look at the British Navy um, as, a, as a modeler and as example. Or if you look at some uh, slightly more contemporary uh, folks in geopolitics, uh, like Edward Whiting Fox, who really emphasizes this connectivity between geography and history, what role do you see um, history playing in the formulation of geopolitics? Because many of these uh, uh, early scholars, really their, their ideas were synthesized because they were looking at that historical pattern um, and how geography perhaps related to the evolution of states, to the way in which they developed, to the way in which they interacted with each other, but used history as a key input into their assessment? Uh, right, that's a great question. And I think Helfer McKinder wrote in one of his articles on methodology of geography uh, that what geology is to uh, physical geography is well, what what history is to political geography is what geology is to physical geography. They really emphasize the role of history, as you mentioned. Uh, why? Because they didn't think that geography, the value of geography, is fixed. It changes over time, but some portions or some some things remain. Some some of the things remain constant, whereas other things change. So I think history really gives you the context and background knowledge to see what factors remain constant and what, what factors change in terms of assessing the value of location and so on and so forth. And also from a strategic vantage point, it is really important to understand what a specific place means for the nation or country in question. So um, for example, uh, there's an ongoing conflict in the Middle East um, and Jerusalem holds a spe special place for um, both Christians and Muslims. So what this particular place means for each nationality or each political group, I think is really important, and it cannot be done without an understanding of history. Um, so to sum it up, it is important to see the changes and continuities 
And from a more strategic vantage point, it is important to understand what a particular location means for different nationalities. Right. And I think if we look, you know, if you go back and, and track through, you know, the, the, the three primary evolutions of Mackinder's writing that ultimately becomes the Heartland thesis, you know, the pivot and then the Heartland and then his final one in the in the midst of World War II, um, it is an assessment of history and trying to see, <clears throat> trying to look at the interaction of the perception of history and geographical spaces and see and identify patterns and then try to see where the patterns come from, right? And so as as Mackinder looks at, you know, that, that central component of Eurasia, he sees uh, a space that over time, multiple waves of outbound um, invasion or outbound activity have taken place, but that maritime power has a very difficult time reaching into that space. And so as you noted, you know, he, he sees that the, the, the railroad as a potential new technology that replaces the horse as the way of that that bastion that land bastion to be able to spread out and then when we think about today of course you know all, a lot of strategic thought about russia and and the way the u.s has looked at russia the soviet union the way mckinder pointed out that geography played on the idea that it was largely inaccessible by sea um, and even if you think about speakman he comes in and says this rimland space is the, the battleground between the land and the sea. It's that space in between the two that becomes the critical battle point. Well, when we look at a, a physical change in geography, like the thawing of the Arctic, we suddenly have a Russia that has a, a massive unprotected coastline um, that potentially has the ability to draw resources from deep in its interior and move them by sea. Um, things, things that haven't existed in the past of Russia. So we see a potential massive change in the geopolitical pattern, the geopolitical role um, or place that Russia may play in the future. And I think by being able to look at those historical patterns on top of geographic spaces um, and blending those two dynamics and then looking at the technologies and the societies as they adapt to exploit or are constrained by these changing values of geography, we get some really strong analysis that can come out of this geopolitical um, uh, methodology. Right. I, I totally agree. And um, there there has been a certain tendency within the scholarship of international relations to try to quantify different geographic features such as distance uh, or, you know, like border lines. And, you know, there, there, there was a political scientist who, who measured the rainfall and then and run, run the regression analysis on how that affects the uh, the frequency of war. Um, you know, these are all very valuable uh, works, and you know, they they can really slice and dice and uh, anatomize uh, different different um, uh, phenomena on in international relations. But also, geography is dynamic and relative and asymmetric, so uh, that can only be done by historical analysis, as you've mentioned. Given the clear importance of geography, right? Um, you know, it's the it's the 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 playing field upon which all humanity interacts. Um, and even if we think about, uh, you know, the the move into space, space has a physical geography. Um, why did what? Why did the role of geography or the recognition of geographical factors? 
um, slip or fade in assessments of international relations um, to, to such an extent that it, that it was almost pushed aside or ignored? And why has, why has the, the United States in many ways allowed geography to wane as something significant for education? Uh, excellent question. And I, I should actually, I, I was thinking of writing an article about it, but um, I will explain it using sort of Kenneth Waltz's three levels of analysis at the international level, domestic or institutional or disciplinary level, and finally, uh, individual level. So at the international level, there were a couple of things going on. One was that um, obviously, ge geopolitik or the German variant of it, uh, of geopolitics, was stigmatized with its uh, supposed Nazi association. But there were broader trends going on. So the development of nuclear weapons and the Cold War bipolarity, as international relations scholars called it, as well as uh, the importance of ideology made people think that the geographic uh, features didn't really matter anymore. So that was the first context. If you, if you read something like Kenneth Waltz's influential article in 1960s, The Stability of the Bipolar World, he basically said uh, peripheries don't really matter in the Cold War context. A second part is domestic and institutional or even disciplinary elements. So... Um, there was an article by, I think, the geographer Neil Smith about the decline of geography department at Harvard. And one of his main points was that geography was having its own identity crisis because there was geology and the sort of old guards of geographers such as uh, Isaiah Bowman were not very receptive to the idea of human geography, incorporating a lot of human factors. Um, and that sort of took place alongside international relations' own sort of identity crisis. And international relations as a field was trying to distinguish itself from diplomatic history and international law. And having a solid theoretical anchor was a purported solution that a lot of people in the field thought. And in that context, I think the Rockefeller Foundation had this gambit to promote Hans Morgenthau's realism. Um, and that sort of led to the uh, decline of other variants of uh, uh, analysis within the international relations scholarship. And there was a, there was an, there was some, there were some individual components to it as well. So Speakman had an early death. He passed away very early on and nobody else really followed up to provide a theoretical analysis of geopolitics. So I think these different components are combined, were combined to lead to the decline of geopolitics. Obviously, there are other reasons mentioned by various scholars, but I don't think this element has been really systematically explored. But this is my uh, hypothesis or assortment of different, different hypotheses on why geography or geopolitics declined. Yeah, and if it's really interesting if you go back, right, um, and think about Mackinder, you know, in, in, in his 1887 uh, on the scope and methods of geography, he was even then uh, trying to defend the idea that geography as a field still needed to exist. Um, you know, right. at, at the time, the assertion was 
you know, geography was done as a field because the world had been mapped. And that's where he really emphasizes that geography is that place for uh, synthetic analysis, for pulling together all of the threads of these other um, greater and greater specializations and fields. And to me, that really becomes the heart of geopolitics as a, as a, as a concept, because it says it's not just geography as making maps or looking at distance. It's geography as a way to understand the intersection of organized people and place over time. Um, and to do so, you pull on all these other threads, but you weave them back together into this synthetic picture. Right. And, and, and Alfred McKinder was spot on, and you, you really nicely summarized his, his view in, in, the, in the article. But I think McKinder's uh, sort of effort uh, ended up being not very uh, effective in the field of geography, at least in the UK context. And the American Academy after World War II was functioning uh, on its own logic. So I think uh, those were sort of unfortunate, in my view, uh, developments uh, at the time that led to the decline of geopolitics. So as we, as we talk about this, you know, we've, we've, we've framed it. What do you see is, you know, a couple of the key geopolitical concepts that can assist in defining grand strategy? We know that obviously geography and the reality of space has long played a strong role in uh, military and military analysis. By default, they're, they're fighting in physical spaces, and so it's stayed there. But obviously in the policy space, it's, it's slipped as ideas become stronger than, than concrete space. So as we think about this, what, what, are, what are the geopolitical concepts that can better help define things like grand strategy or better assess policy options? Well, I think there are different tranches of geographical or geopolitical concepts. Um, the first one would be uh, geographical or geopolitical concepts denoting a particular region, such as Rimland or Heartland, or you know, if, if you look at the contemporary uh, context, uh, China's first island chain or Russia's near abroad, those would be uh, some geopolitical concepts that are confined to particular regions or um, sort of like a regional connotations. The second geographic concept would be would be those focusing on certain geographic features. Uh, I think I cited John Mearsheimer's stopping power of water in the article and uh, Patrick Porter's strategic distance. Uh, if you go back into the history, I think Kenneth Balding had this loss of strength gradient uh, uh, meaning, you know, the, the farther you go away, the, the less power projection capabilities you have. Um, third category would be geographic analogy. Um, there was a very, a very insightful article written by uh, Dr. Thomas Mankin uh, in United, Na United States Navy uh, proceedings on using the first island chain as the Falder gap uh, as with the Cold War. Um, obviously, there are other analogies, uh, Taiwan being famously described as the uh, unsinkable aircraft carrier or, you know, Japanese uh, diplomat in the 19th century called it the Malta of the Pacific. So these are the third category. And the final one, I think, is uh, some geographical concepts 
uh, describing a strategic style. So land versus sea power is probably the most prominent one, but also in the political science, international scholars, international relations literature, uh, they use something like offense, defense, balance. Um, and also in the strategic studies community, we still use land-sea power dichotomy. Uh, and in the context of Russia, we use uh, Eurasian or Euro European or Asiatic power and so on and so forth. So these are some of the typologies of geopolitical concepts that, have, that we have been used. Uh, we have been using and some of them are less useful with the passage of time but some remain very useful you know it's, as you talk about things like um geographic analogy it, it brings to mind um you know ernest armay and his uh cautions of of um historical analogy uh how, how does one in doing geopolitical analysis for policy or for other purposes um, one, avoid the trap of determinism, geographic determinism, which, of course, was was linked to some of the old Germanic schools. But quite frankly, in popular geopolitics today, um, there's a lot of geopolitical determinism, geographic determinism that seems to be accepted or 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 proffered. Um, and, and how does one make sure that they are finding the, the not stopping at the first um, geographic analogy, but really look and, and assess to find the right analogy? Um, well, short answer is it depends, right? Um, I, I know it sounds wishy-washy, but it really depends. Um, and one has to recognize that geography conditions but does not determine, and I think that recognition is the point of departure. Um, different people have different ways of looking at things and you cannot really incorporate everything. And if you incorporate everything, it really doesn't mean anything. And the way I see geopolitics is that you incorporate materials, structural material, um, factors to see the constraint uh, to sort of identify constraints and opportunities, in international relations. Another way of looking at it, I think, uh, is. Uh, Fernand Burdell's uh, mode of analysis sort of offers a useful uh, window. He looks at uh, the long durée environments, uh, and then he he layers socioeconomic developments on top of it, and then he layers on top of those two factors a daily political activity. So you know that is also one of the ways in which you can sort of do geopolitical analysis in a thoughtful and not deterministic way. Um, you know, there, there, are, there are good works, historical and, and political science, uh, that sort of are written from a from geopolitical perspective. I think Paul Kennedy's Rising Fall of Great Powers is a, is a, is a great example. Uh, SCM Payne's works are really good in terms of incorporating geopolitical theories or frameworks into really solid historical analysis. So these are really good examples of how to do geopolitical analysis in a really sensible way. Yeah, there's a there's an author, I, his name escapes me right now, and I, I can picture the book, but there's a great line in there where effectively he he relates um, to the, the, the geographic space as the the wicket in cricket, um, huh. you know, or we would we would we would these days refer to it as the ball field, um, at least on this side of the pond. 
but that that there are different ways that you that you interact in different particular spaces, right? A a baseball diamond is a baseball diamond is a baseball diamond, but they're not because the stadiums have different shapes or different different dynamics to them that then alter the way in which one maybe interacts within a particular geography. And and of course, as we look at at these geographic factors, as you've pointed out many times here in this discussion, I think is worth hitting one more time. The the geography is not deterministic because geography is the place, but it is how do people interact or react to that geography that determines the relative value or constraint that that geography puts forward. And the intersection, the interplay between those is usually technology, right? That technology is the, the tool in which um, organized people interact with place and therefore it can reduce the geographic friction. It can, uh, you know, a, a water can be a pathway or a wall. Um, the, the, the resources that are being desired at a particular moment in time will be different based on different types of technology and therefore will change the relative perception of value of particular spaces for competition. And I think as we think about geography, right, it's a, a river facilitates, but a river doesn't guarantee success. And so those become important. Br bringing it back then to application, right? Um, what is it or what is it in, in geopolitical analysis that you see that um, let's say we're looking at U.S.-China relations or Russia-NATO over Ukraine or some of the, the, the dynamics happening in the Middle East, what do you see as the way in which a geopolitical perspective can provide that value add beyond the traditional political analysis or, or historical analysis or ideological analysis uh, of one of these dynamics? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It's a, it's a good question. So the way I see it, and as I close the article, I think there is no uh, good theory informing the vector of foreign policy. There are a lot of uh, bin countings in, in, in the uh, scientific jargon. They deal with the uh, scholar, not vector. So where great powers will direct their military strategy and foreign policy, it, it is not well explored, at least in the international relations literature. So that is one thing. And if you look at China, uh, the rise of China, a lot of scholars uh, who use some geopolitical components in their analyses wrote in 1990s that China, because it's a traditional land power, uh, US-China relations would become you know, pretty much stable. But the land-sea power dichotomy changes over time throughout history. And now we see, you know, the concentration of economic activities along the coastal areas and accordingly China building up, China, we see China building up its Navy and so on and so forth. So the question of whether it's going to remain as a land power or become a sea power, I think is a crucial one for, from the vantage point of US, US statecraft. And by virtue of anticipating the direction, I think geopolitical analysis helps us and, and prioritize different regions. And 
that is going to be the main sort of crux of my main book project. But how do you prioritize and how do you sort of think about whether your country is overstretched or understretched in particular regions? I think geopolitical analysis more so than a bean counting perspective or ideological analysis offers a sort of a better tool in terms of thinking about these issues. So one, I definitely want to talk to you when you finally get the uh, the book done, because that's a particularly interesting period of time um, in the Far East. <laughs> and we'll we'll follow up on that. But it, what would be you know, you, you mentioned you, you really, um, you know, have a passion for the reinvigorating geopolitics within the international relations curriculum, the international relations uh, milieu. Um, what would be your advice or recommendation for new or existing students who are entering those fields um, to start building that stronger geopolitical framework to add that element uh, to their uh, analytic capabilities? Um, well, thank you for the question. I, I think what is really important in my view is to read the classics. Um, Helper McKinder Mahan uh, Speakman, but also some other old works on uh, geography and geopolitics, which are really, a, really a sort of a worthy, worthy investment in the long term, in my view. The second part is that you also have to read uh, history uh, widely and in depth. Uh, if you only know like one particular period, I think your assumption or your understanding of history is predicated upon certain geographic and technological assumptions. So those are sort of more um, geopolitics related sort of tips. And the final thing I think is, it has broader implications. I, I think it is really important to read uh, something that, something written by the authors you disagree with and so that you can triangulate different angles. And then geopolitical analysis is not is less interested in day-to-day -day operations than medium to long-term um, consequences. So in order to get that right, I think you have to try be able to triangulate different viewpoints because uh, nowadays a lot of uh, writings, um, they're animated by uh, sort of less objective impulses. So if you want to become a geopolitical analyst, you should really be able to uh, see some merits in different sides of the story and, and come up with your own synthesis. So I, I would say, you know, these three things, you know, reading classics, uh, have breadth and width in history and reading and re reading different publications from different angles. Those are my three tips. Yeah. And I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll throw in a fourth and, and swing us back to the geo. And that is, spend a lot of time with maps and globes, right? Look absolutely, at them in, absolutely. In, in different ways. Take apart a, a country by layers, right? What's the topography? What are the mineral resources? What's the, what's the rainfall dynamic? What's the transportation infrastructure? What's the population density? What are the, the, the neighbors and peripheries? What are the, the natural routes and natural barriers? Um, and then layer all those over top of each other and see how they interact. And again, it's not determined that because something is somewhere, it's going to it's going to to do that. But geography provides 
opportunity and cost that historically in earlier technological eras often did have a much larger role on where and how societies developed. But those patterns then have shaped um, cultural norms, uh, uh, strategic culture, have shaped uh, lingering geographic dynamics that, you know, to, in today's technology wouldn't necessarily have been the first choices. But even if you think about the, you know, the location of key port cities internationally, many of them are, are historical legacies of an era when one moved internationally by wind power, right? And so right. as you can as you can look at those, um, you can start to be able to perceive, you know, constraints and compulsions, not not diktats, but constraints and compulsions um, based on an initial geographic assessment that you can then go test through all of these other means um, and refine as you go forward. Right. So if, if I may, I think you, you, your point is excellent. I by by studying history, I meant uh looking at the maps alongside history books because i i for for me it's really hard to process information without looking at which happened where and also uh if you only read a particular strand of historiography like for example the diplomatic history written from a traditionalist spanish point or economic history from uh from sort of revisionist spanish point i think it is it remains incomplete so you have to read diplomatic economic and some environmental history as well so so that you have like a comprehensive understanding of the period while looking at maps and and understand what happens where so i think looking at the map is a really important thing all right so Tehan, i really want to thank you for this time today well thank you um uh, the the article if if you haven't had a chance to see it is called rethinking geopolitics geography as an aid to statecraft and it was published in the Texas National Security Review. Um, and of course, as noted, I'm looking forward to uh, to when you finally get done with your uh, geographical pivot of grand strategy, looking at uh, rising powers in the Far East, uh, pretty much at the turn of the uh, turn of the century. Right. Uh, it was a decade demarcated by the Sino-Japanese War and the Russo-Japanese War. So the East Asian regional balance was basically upended and enter the new period. So that's definitely going to be another conversation for us to have down the road. Um, all right, thank you again for, for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. We've been talking with Jayhan Park, a postdoctoral fellow and adjunct lecturer at the Edwin O. Reischauer Center for East Asian Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. To keep up with the latest trends and changes in the global geopolitical landscape, to explore implications uh, for internationally engaged businesses and organizations, visit RainNetwork.com and sign up for alerts and information from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. That's R-A-N-E Network.com. I'm Roger Baker. Thanks for listening. <laughs>